is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman, KNX In-Depth, your daily news magazine where we dig deeper on the big stories of the day with newsmakers and experts from wherever news happens. We cover everything from breaking news to the just plain interesting. KNX In-Depth digs deep and asks the hard questions to bring you the facts you need to know. On the menu for today's show, inflation continues to balloon, making practically everything more expensive. Consumer prices jumping 7% last month from a year earlier, making for the highest inflation rate since 1982. We'll go in-depth into what this means for the economy as well as your grocery and gasoline bills. At-home COVID tests will be free, sort of, starting on Saturday. Insurance companies will be required to reimburse you for what you spend on them, but that could be difficult because you may not be able to find the tests to begin with. Small details. Small detail, right. And Pfizer says it is working on a vaccine specifically for the Omicron variant, but will it work to end the pandemic? Well, the surge has caused a massive number of infections around the world, but there is some hope ahead. Looks like the U.K. is hitting a peak. The U.S. might not be far behind. California is maybe a step closer to universal health care. What about a Biden-Liz Cheney 2024 presidential ticket? Might sound far-fetched, but there is talk that that might be what the country needs. And then what if cannabis could prevent COVID infections? There's some new research out there. We'll talk about that, uh, but don't go searching for the nearest dispensary just yet. So wait, what happens to Kamala Harris? That's a great question. I'm sure she's wondering, given, <laughs> yeah. the, given the talk. <laughs> okay, let's start. Well, let's start with inflation. Ronan Sana, senior analyst, commentator on CNBC, and uh, host of the Market Scoreboard Report. Ron, welcome back. Uh, why does it always seem like all these federal experts are wrong? I remember not too long ago they were insisting, I'm talking about the people at the Fed, that, um, you know, this uh, inflation, it's going to wane pretty quickly. It's a temporary glitch. Uh, now they're saying, well, you know, this may go on, I don't know, another year or more. Well, I think I think their first assessment was right if we didn't run you know, straight into the, the buzzsaw of the Delta variant, which you know, extended the dur- duration of the pandemic, extended the supply chain disruptions that caused shortages of computer chips uh, all the way to potato chips. And so with that happening, those pandem- pandemic related uh, or induced, I should say, shortages pushed prices up for a wide variety of goods. We're seeing a deceleration in inflation. The year over year number, as you mentioned, was 7% above December of last year. But on a monthly basis, we've gone from a 0.9% increase the below that and today to a 0.5% increase in inflation. So the rate of increase is slowing. And I think that's good news. And I think in 2022, we're going to see that slow down even further. Okay, so the rate slows. Things are still expensive, though. Does this mean the Fed acts quicker to do stuff now that they have realized that it's not something that's going away? I mean, that's the bet. And even uh, Federal Reserve Chair Jay Powell in his Senate reconfirmation hearing uh, two days ago suggested that, indeed, uh, the Federal Reserve is going to fight inflation. They're going to finish uh, or wind up, I should say, their bond buying program by March, and they could start raising rates as early as then. Now, Goldman Sachs came out, the big Wall Street brokerage house, and said we could see four rate hikes this year. Jamie Dimon, the CEO of J.P. Morgan, said maybe more. I'm in the camp that says three or less. I think that the Federal Reserve will do what's necessary. I think inflation will fall, particularly for manufactured goods on their own. 
uh, on its own. And then I think um, if the Fed were to get too aggressive, you'd see a problem in the financial markets. And they tend to back off if things get a little dicey, both on Main Street and on Wall Street. OK, but let's look at it from for a moment from the point of view of the average person, maybe our listener. Uh, sure. OK, so let's say, our, you know, the figures are showing it's starting to uh, uh, to calm down uh, a bit anyway, the inflation rate. But a lot of things that people have to buy are on long term uh, on a long term basis. If your rent goes up uh, a lot because of the current yeah. inflation, you may be locked into it for a year or two lease. If you buy a car or lease a car at a higher rate, you may now be locked into that for two, three, maybe even four years. So they may be saying people who are listening to this great that inflation in a couple of months is going to cool down. But I'm meantime going to be paying through the nose for the next three years. Uh, yes and no. I mean, yes, that's true that prices are will be higher for certain items like cars. Uh, you know, gasoline, particularly in California, is as volatile as any commodity can be, given, you know, ethanol and tax issues that increase the price of gasoline, particularly in places like Los Angeles. But also wages have gone up, and I don't think that's been taken into account nearly enough. They've gone up about 6% year over year. So they're yes, they're lagging inflation, and you've had a decline of 1% in real purchasing power, but you haven't had a decline of 7%. In real purchasing power. So I think, you know, you have to add that in. People are making more money, uh, particularly at the lower end of the income scale. And yes, that does tend to stoke, at least in prior periods, a little more inflation. I do think that when the pandemic passes, a lot of this is going to moderate. And and I think that the Fed was initially right. But look, we've gone through two additional variants of of the coronavirus that no one had anticipated. And so it's just disrupted the labor force, it's disrupted the supply of goods, and it's pushed up prices. And I think we're just going to, as they say in golf, kind of have to play through until we get to the <laughs> other side. Ron Insana, senior analyst, commentator, CNBC, host of the Market Scoreboard Reports. Starting Saturday anyway, private insurance companies are supposed to start reimbursing people for their at-home COVID tests as long as those tests are FDA approved. Now, there's a monthly limit, but what good is getting reimbursed if you can't find the tests to begin with? With us is Lindsay Dawson, health systems and insurance coverage expert at Kaiser Family Foundation, and she has been tracking at-home testing. That's quite a chore, I would imagine, Lindsay. Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah, it's been quite a chore. Um, Certainly home tests continue to be in short supply. They have been for a while now. Um, You know, if you're online and you're searching multiple sites for multiple types of tests, you can probably find something, Um, but it might take a bit of legwork. And some of the prices are high and some of the delivery dates are over a week out. Okay, so... It's supposed to be getting better. A, more tests are supposed to come through the pipeline. B, we're supposed to get reimbursed for them. But if I'm trying to find them the way that, you know, you can find them right now, can I go get reimbursed or is that going to be a huge chore? So starting on Saturday, consumers should be able to get reimbursed for tests that they purchase out of pocket. Um, If you brought something in December, your insurance company doesn't have to reimburse you um, by the end of this week. Um, But starting on test purchase Saturday on, um, you should be able to seek reimbursement. Now, am I correct that as I read it, each individual is entitled under this plan to eight tests, I believe, per person in their household per month? That's so right. right. So if somebody but I have this 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 notion of being in line at a at a pharmacy and the pharmacy has maybe like 30 in stock and the guy in front of me is going to say, hey, I've got like four people in my family. Give me eight each person because you don't have to spread it out over the month. You can get them all in one time. Right. 
Yeah, so certainly the success of this program and its ability to help people better afford tests hinges on test availability. Um, and so we're gonna have to watch that very closely. Certainly today, um, it doesn't look like you can necessarily walk into your local pharmacy and be guaranteed that there's even a single test on the store shelves, um, let alone eight. Um, and so there's definitely efforts underway um, to try and encourage more test companies to come into the US and to get those tests to market. Um, but right now it could certainly be a wrinkle in this plan. Is it on me to file the expense and wait for them to look at the receipt and get the money back? Or are they going to say, you know what, if you go to CVS or Walgreens, uh, show your card and then you get one there and we'll, we'll get you the money or do I not have to pay? How is it supposed to work? Yeah, so there are two ways it can work. Um, the first is that plans are being encouraged um, to provide what they're calling direct coverage of tests to consumers. And so that would mean that your plan creates some kind of a network with pharmacies or stores or develops a direct to consumer shipping program. And there and then really could get a test, right? They could do that without having to front the cost and the plan would take care of the reimbursement on the back end. Depending on how that's set up from a consumer perspective, this could be the easiest way to get a test and could certainly save them from having to front the cost or to navigate a reimbursement process. Shouldn't all, shouldn't all of this have been done like a long time ago? It's kind of like the Titanic, you know, is, is, is going under and they're putting out a call to buy lifeboats. Yeah, um, you know, I do want to, I'll respond to that in just a second. I just do want to say for um, folks listening that in addition to that direct consumer piece, people can seek more traditional reimbursement. So save your receipts, navigate a reimbursement process, reimburse them, wait for re um, reimbursement, um, and then move on. But yeah, I mean, the U.S. approach to testing generally has been quite different from what we've seen in some other countries. Initially, the U.S. really invested in vaccines, um, and folks probably have the experience that after the initial ramp up that vaccines were widely and freely accessible to them. You could go to a mass vaccine site, you could go to a pharmacy, you could go to a health center, or you could go to your county um, and get a vaccine without paying. Other places did this with testing. Um, so places like the UK made these initial um, advanced purchase agreements with testing companies, assured the companies that there would be a market and um, really developed a, a system for getting tests out to people quickly. So we're paying, playing a bit of catch up in the U.S. Lindsay Dawson, health systems and insurance coverage experts at uh, Kaiser Family Foundation. What if, this is a big what if, by the way, what if President Biden ran for re-election in 2024 with Liz Cheney? Now, that idea is being floated around. We'll find out if it's going to sink or swim. California could be the first state to get universal health care. All that coming up. Right now, Pfizer is uh, going forward with the plans to manufacture doses for a new Omicron-specific COVID vaccine, also testing hybrid combinations to target uh, multiple coronavirus forms. With us is Dr. Deborah Fuller, vaccine developer and microbiologist, University of Washington. Uh, thanks for talking to us. So the Omicron-Pfizer vaccine, uh, I guess you can go a couple ways with this, right? Okay, good news. We need it. Uh, but it's going to be March by the time it's ready. So, uh, other hand, it's kind of going to be too late, maybe? Uh, how do you see this? Yes, I think there's there are two two different ways of looking at this. Uh, first of all, one, one of the aspects about the mRNA vaccines is that they can be very rapidly updated. But the question is, uh, is it too little too late? 
Um, and what we're, um, you know, typically when we have to update vaccines, for example, influenza, we update our vaccines every year. What you're doing is you have to get the vaccine administered in front of the surge. And of course, we're already experiencing the surge right now. And so the thinking where this vaccine might be a bit too late is that by the time it's ready, that surge is already done. So who is this vaccine going to benefit? On the other hand, it could have a benefit, particularly for people who are still unvaccinated. If you think about um, currently right now, the recommendation is for us to go out and get a third uh, booster immunization with the original vaccine that was designed for the original variant. And that's because that raises our immunity to levels that's going to provide us with this, as a significant degree of protection against Omicron. Um, but let's say you're unvaccinated. Um, if you were to say get an Omicron specific vaccine, you may be able to build that immunity much quicker, say after two doses, than have to go through the full three doses to get that immunity. So I can see where if they are going to produce some doses of this, that it might have some benefit for certain uh, demographics. But I can also see on the other hand, where uh, the thinking of too little too late, we will probably and hopefully be past the surge of Omicron by March. Well, and it, and it also, I mean, you know, the public does end up getting, I think, fa you know, vaccine fatigue. Uh, you get the sense of a hamster kind of spinning a wheel in a cage that, that you know, you finally come up, they'll come up with an Omicron uh, variant specific vaccine. And perhaps as we've just been talking about, it's going to be on the tail end of the surge. But by the time people start rolling up their sleeves, if they do, to get that shot, maybe another variant comes along. I mean, it, it, yes, everybody is supposed to get a yearly flu shot. But I think some people are thinking, well, wait a minute, we're getting, it seems, a lot more than one shot a year at the moment. Yes, that's because we are in a pandemic right now. And, a pa and pandemic is very different from what our future holds for, uh, for coronaviruses. Ultimately, this virus is going to become endemic, which is very similar to what influenza is right now. And then we'll probably be looking at annual immunizations to update our vaccines, to match whatever variant may be circulating. But when you're in a pandemic, you're going to have unexpected surges of new variants emerging here and there. Uh, and so that's the situation we're in right now. But the future is that uh, two different possibilities. One is that similar to influenza, we might need annual immunizations updated to match whatever the variant is. It may not be one variant. It may be multiple variants circulating, similar to what we see with influenza. But the real future for coronavirus vaccines, I think, is actually uh, a concept that we call pan-coronavirus vaccine, which is currently under development in research labs, including my own lab, where we're going to have one vaccine, ideally, that's going to induce immune responses that cross-react across a lot of different coronaviruses out there, not only all the ones that are circulating, but potential future ones to come so that we might have immunity to protect against any future uh, pandemic. So that's the future. We're looking at maybe five years down the line for one of those. And in the interim, what we're hoping is that within uh, another year or so, or maybe six months, who knows how long it's going to be, that we'll start to see this pandemic become endemic and be able to manage it uh, more effectively through annual immunization. But for, forgive me, why do I sort of sense that in, I don't know, maybe five years from now, if there is a, a pan uh, uh, variant vaccine available that covers all, I, why do I see the headline in five years saying, New coronavirus variant pierces the shield of the all-purpose vaccine. 
Yeah, so that's the, the hypothesis or the, the, the thinking is that it won't be able to because the way these vaccines are designed, will be designed is to induce immune responses against parts of the coronavirus that do not change. They're the same and all, so all coronaviruses have to have certain components that are the same because if they change them, then they actually compromise their own ability to replicate, which would be good for us actually if, if they do. So, uh, so that's the concept behind it is that uh, there won't be a coronavirus out there that could emerge uh, to dodge uh, the immunity of a pan-coronavirus vaccine. There's a similar concept under development for influenza as well, a universal influenza vaccine that maybe uh, that would be able to provide immunity against all different strains of influenza. And at most, we might have to get booster immunizations just to you know, sustain the immune response uh, at high levels, you know, say, may every two or three years. Deborah Fuller, vaccine developer, microbiologist, University of Washington. You're listening to KNX In-Depth, your daily deep dive into some of the more important and interesting stories affecting all of our lives. Along with Mike Simpson, I'm Charles Feldman. We've all been watching the case numbers across the U.S. spike with Omicron's arrival. When should we expect for the uh, peak and then the tapering down? Scientists seeing signs the U.K. might have peaked and the U.S. could be next. Dr. Anne Ramoyne, professor of epidemiology, infectious diseases, UCLA's Fielding School of Public Health. Doctor, welcome back to the show. So we've said throughout this pandemic, you know, it looks like we're a few weeks behind the U.K. Uh, do we think that that will hold with Omicron? Well, thanks for having me. And uh, this is a very important topic that everybody is wondering right now. And and so what what we're really seeing here is that, that the, the cases are accelerating dramatically uh, throughout the United States. And and we can, you know, we it's, it's likely that, that we may follow a similar trend uh, in the, what we saw in the in South Africa and the UK, but there's some caveats there. First of all, the United States is a much bigger country, and we're probably going to be seeing peaks and valleys with certain certain regions peaking first. So, for example, New York and DC may be peaking um, soon. We may here in Los Angeles have a ways to go, and certainly the Midwest, which is behind uh, the the rest of us, will uh, you know very well may may peak after that. Let me see if we could also clear something up for all of our listeners, because I've been looking at uh, social media the past couple of days and also what government officials from the CDC uh, on down uh, have been saying. And there's this narrative developing, doctor, that people are saying, well, you know, uh, we're being told that every it's so infectious, everybody is going to get this particular variant, and so you know it's coming next. Uh, the next part of that equation is people say, so then if we're not vaccinated, what's the point? Because we're going to get it anyway. Well, I, I think that that's not exactly what, what uh, the, the, the messaging has been, and I know that this is very confusing. The, the, the point that uh, health, the, all of these people in the, in the health sector have been making is that everybody is likely to come in contact with COVID-19 at this point. It is not that the vast majority of people will get it. We really do have a choice uh, in terms of what we do to reduce our risk of getting the virus. We will see a lot of people getting it, and certainly uh, the vast majority of people will come in contact with it. But you reduce your chances of getting it if you are vaccinated, and in particular, if you are boosted, if you wear a very high-quality mask, if you take your activities outdoors where you can, wash your hands, uh, remain social distance, and avoid gatherings uh, with people that are outside your household at this particular moment. You can definitely uh, reduce your risk of getting it. 
So you may come in contact or in closer, closer proximity to people who do have it. Okay, so instead of saying everyone's going to get this, which means, you know, to some people, well, let it rip, who cares, let's overwhelm the hospitals. Uh, you can say everyone's going to be exposed, which can promote, I don't know, caution, because you know it's going to come for you at some point. So be ready when it's here and have on that good mask. Exactly. Now, there are many reasons why you still don't want to catch Omicron, uh, just to quote, get it over with. Uh, this is this is definitely uh, not just a, um, a, a bad cold. And as you said, uh, if people if, if there, there's a potential for long term consequences and there are people in particular, those who are vulnerable, who will get very sick, potentially get hospitalized and, and even die. But even if it is it is milder than other variants, every case that we have pushes uh, this, this epidemic farther. It provides the virus for opportunities to, to mutate. If it's mutating, we may end up with more contagious uh, or virulent variants. And, and of course, the issue that you brought up, more cases mean that our hospitals are getting overwhelmed. So if you're triple vaccinated and you're pretty cautious anyway, are there things, for example, that you will not do now? Absolutely. I, you know, I, I think everybody has to really think about their own risk threshold, but also what they're doing and how it's going to, con- going to contribute to spread in our community. Uh, so things that, that, that the reason that we all want to avoid getting it and being part of transmission chains is we have to drive down these cases, not just about you. It's not just about me. It's about all of us. And we have more cases out there. Our hospitals are overwhelmed. Our schools have trouble staying open. Our teachers are sick. Our essential workers are sick. Our health workers are sick. So everybody benefits when the number of cases go down. What can you do? You can, of course, vaccinations and boosting, very important. The uh, the next thing that you can do is that you can wear a very high-quality mask. No more cloth masks. The cloth masks are not as effective against Omicron. Wear a KN95 or an N95. Or if you don't have options to wear either of those, wear two surgical masks or a surgical mask with a tight-fitting cloth mask over it. Uh, you know, up that game. And again, take those activities outside where you can. Very quickly, before we run out of time, one of the things that has struck me throughout this whole pandemic is whenever we talk to all kinds of experts, very rarely do they also bring up things like better, getting better nutrition, getting good sleep, those sort of things. Isn't that important, too, along with wearing masks and getting vaccines? Well, certainly having your um, having optimal immunity is is a is good and and good for for all things. So there's no reason not to do that. Uh, but you know this variant is extremely contagious. So the things that you really want to be able to do is to to focus on wearing and and in the short term, long term game, better nutrition, better take better care of yourself. Short term game, don't get Omicron. Be vaccinated, be boosted, wear a high quality mask. Avoid doing things indoors that you don't have to do with people that are outside your household. Uh, take it outside and uh, be mindful of what your what your plans are these days. Dr. Ann Ramoyne, professor of epidemiology, infectious diseases, UCLA's Fielding School of Public Health. I like that simple message. Short term game. Don't get Omicron. Yeah. That's what she meant. <laughs> OK, what if a Democrat teamed up with a Republican on a presidential ticket? Now, that sounds odd. But New York Times columnist Tom Friedman proposed such an idea in his latest column. He's suggesting President Biden should run with Liz Cheney in 2024. So why propose an idea that sounds so crazy to so many people? Or is it actually crazy? Stephen Levitsky, political scientist at Harvard University, co-author of the book How Democracies Die, 
Thanks for being with us. So let's start at that last point. Is this what keeps democracy alive? Um, you know, this kind of a ticket, theoretically? In normal times, no. Normal times, you wouldn't expect center-left politicians to align with uh, ultra-conservative politicians like Liz Cheney. But when democracy is on the line, when democracy is imminently threatened, that is precisely what small-D Democratic politicians have to do. And uh, across history, many of the most effective defenses of democracy have occurred when politicians have agreed to, to sort of set aside some very important differences and join forces in explicit defense of democracy. Well, and, and also for people who think, well, this is just a, a crazy idea to have a Democrat and Republican run. Isn't it true that in the very early days of this republic, like the late 1700s, didn't John Adams get elected president and Thomas Jefferson vice president, but they were from two opposing parties? Yes. In, it, we had a, a really messed up electoral system initially um, uh, where president and vice president didn't run on the same ticket, and it led to a terrible crisis in 1800 and then uh, a reform of, of the electoral system. So that uh, basically when the, when the Republicans founded, we didn't have presidential, vice presidential tickets. So that was more of an accident than an alliance. So what's the message? Let's let's take this forward. Let's say you get and in any combination of, you know, choose your choose your your fighters and, and put their names on the ticket together and one from a different party. And they come out and they say, watch to the voters. And especially, you know, if it's Joe Biden and, and, and Liz Cheney, we'll, we'll stick with that. Republicans will look and say, OK, well, it's just going to be Democrats. And then she's going to say something and say, quiet. No, we're not going to do that. We won the presidency. Um, what do they say to get people on board? with this, that Donald Trump can't win, you have to vote against him? Yeah, again, you, this is not something we do in normal times. But in, in, when the House is on fire, when, when democracy is in grave danger, the message has to be that democracy is in grave danger. This election is not going to be about Democrats versus Republicans. It's not going to be about red versus blue. It's not going to be about elephants versus donkeys. It's going to be about those who are committed to our constitutional order versus authoritarian forces. So, That's you, the so you don't think that, that Tom Friedman's uh, notions uh, that he was kind of throwing out there was a bit of a trial balloon. You don't think it's that far-fetched? It's pretty far-fetched. But again, we've got to be thinking outside of the box. I'm telling you. If we continue to act as if this is a normal election in 2024, if the media and politicians and pundits all continue to act like this is a normal election, then voters will believe it's a normal election and they'll vote accordingly. And that means that we have a coin flip chance of an anti-democratic force winning the presidency. I don't want to take that chance. Are the current crop of politicians ready to sacrifice enough to make something like this happen? Because you're going to have to get everybody campaigning for this, you know, split yeah. ticket. And maybe some of the progressives are going to say, no, I'm not going to do that. Come on. Exactly. No, I would say they're not ready, which is why I, why I would like to start the conversation now. I think we need to begin debating this over the next couple of years. Politicians are nowhere near ready to do it because you're right. It does take sacrifice. 
So, uh, presuming, because I, I guess I have a hard time believing that even in these times that we'll ever see a split ticket with a Democrat and a Republican running uh, for, the, for the office of president and, and vice president. So, presuming that my hunch was right and that will not happen, what then? Disaster? Nothing is certain. Well, one thing is certain is 2024 will probably, if, particularly if it's a normal election, it'll be a very close election just like 20, 2016, just like 2020, it'll be a super close election. A lot will depend on the economy. A lot will depend on, on candidates' health because Biden and Trump are both getting up there in years. So many, many, many things can happen. But, but what we know is it's going to be very close. We know that Donald Trump or someone like him is likely to be the Republican candidate, meaning the Republicans are going to continue to be an anti-democratic force. And we know that as the opposition party, particularly during pretty tough times, they have a good chance to win. It's not guaranteed that they'll win, but it's certainly possible. And I don't think you play around with democracy in that way. Dangerous if it's that close, given what we saw the last go round, because somebody's going to contest. And then if you don't have the same people that you had in all the same places, I mean, we were pretty close last time to some secretary of state saying, well, maybe it, it's wrong or, or some legislature sending different ballots in for the electoral counter or pick your scenario. That's absolutely right. I mean, first of all, it's perfectly possible that the Republicans, including Trump, would win a free and fair election. But two things are also true. First of all, the Electoral College these days gives the Republicans a pretty big bonus. The way things stand now, Biden would have to win probably by about four percentage points. He'd have to win not 50 percent, but 52 percent of the overall vote to win. And secondly, as you mentioned, there's a pretty good chance that Republicans will try to use some shenanigans at the local and state level. Um, to to maybe even overturn results. Uh, 2020 was kind of a dress rehearsal in that sense. But All of that is reason to build a, a broad enough coalition to win big. But when you say that Republicans may try to, to you know, do some or pull some shenanigans, aren't they already doing that? I mean, what, what, how many yeah. states have already rewritten some of their own laws so that it would make it much more difficult for people, presumably 17. Democrats, to vote? 17? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, no, they're, they're making it more difficult for, for, for traditionally Democratic voters to vote in some states, and they are enabling Republican state legislatures to override local election authorities in Democratic strongholds in places like Harris County, Texas, where Houston is, or Fulton County, uh, Georgia, where Atlanta is, or Milwaukee County in, in Wisconsin, um, so that they may be able to step in and close down polling places, purge voter rolls. Uh, and maybe disqualify ballots. Stephen Levitsky, political scientist to Harvard and co-author of the book, How Democracies Die. Stephen, thanks. You're listening to KNX In-Depth, your daily deep dive into some of the more important and interesting stories affecting all of our lives. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Universal health care has long been a goal of progressives, hasn't gotten anywhere in D.C., but uh, maybe it's moving in Sacramento. Bill to create a single-payer system called CalCare that guarantees coverage to everybody in the state has made its way through the Assembly Health Committee. But it still has a long way to go through before passing and faces stiff opposition from business and other groups. If it fails, can we still achieve universal health care? With us now is the bill's author, Ash Cholera, Democratic Assembly member from San Jose, and Anthony Wright, executive director of the health care advocacy group Health Access, which has no direct connection to this bill. Thank you both for being with us. Um, Assemblyman, let me ask you 
uh, first about uh, money, because people want to know if we have universal health care, how much is it going to cost? Well, thanks for having me. And that's a natural question for folks to ask. And the short answer is it'll cost less than what people are paying now. We pay the most, um, more for healthcare than anywhere else in the world. The average employer pays $20,000 a year for premiums for family care for their employees. And the average worker pays $6,000 a year. Okay, but give, me, but, but give me give me a dollar figure. How much in aggregate is it going to cost? And how much would it cost most individuals? Well, it depends on the individual. Uh, and because there's different factors in the taxation. The entire system currently costs over $400 billion a year. That's our current system. Every academic study that's been done has shown that a single-payer system will drop the overall cost 10%. And so the majority of costs right now into our system are state and federal funds. We would have to raise the delta, and we do that through progressive taxation rather than through premiums and co-pays that are just squeezing families. And so we're talking about a very modest payroll tax, far less than what employers are paying right now for health care for their employees. Um, We're talking about a modest income tax on high-wage earners, as well as a gross receipts tax, which is a much more equitable way to balance out uh, the cost across society than a sales tax increase. Okay, 1.25% on payroll tax for employers, half a percent if you're making more than, you know, 150 annually, then more for, for 2.5 million. So there's the taxes. Now, now the next question that people have is... You expect the state that runs the EDD and the DMV with such problems to be able to pull this off? How? Well, we already, you know, through Medi-Cal, um, through Medicare, we are already pay- paying um, healthcare providers right now seamlessly. They get billed, they get paid, and so that's already happening. This is not a takeover of the healthcare system. It's simply who is paying the bill for the same doctors and nurses and hospitals and clinics you're already going to. And that's the difference. It's not about the government running the health care program. It's just about payment. And we already do that in so many different ways right now. Anthony, Anthony Wright, what do you think of this idea? I, I presume, I, I think you're in favor of universal health care, but are you happy with the way this plan is likely to be implemented if it's implemented in California? Yeah, no, we certainly support the the vision and the goal of a universal health care system with unified financing. I'm on the governor's uh, Healthy California for All Commission to, to help work out the details because, you know, once you decide even we're going to go in, to, in the direction of a single-payer universal health care system, there's still dozens of decision points to make. And I really compliment Assemblymember Kara for, for trying to work through those issues and about how to finance, how to transition, how to, how to get to this goal because, frankly, the status quo d- doesn't work. The for so many Californians, uh, people who not just fall uninsured, but people who are f- facing high cost sharing, people who get caught uh, having care denied or j- just not having a good experience with their health care system. Uh, Americans pay more for health care and get less. And, and so we're trying to figure out better ways. And California has shown a record of progress. You mentioned, uh, you know, the state doesn't do everything well, but we actually have one of the best implementations of the Affordable Care Act, and we think we can build on that progress. So since uh, he mentioned the governor there, Assemblyman, back to you, because the governor has his carefully worded universal health care for all, which is part of his budget proposal, which you guys get to tinker with and vote on. And it basically fills in all the gaps for Medi-Cal coverage um, to all Californians, undocumented immigrants included. What do you think of, of that idea? 
Well, I, I absolutely applaud the governor, uh, as well as Anthony and Health Access and others that have been advocating for this, including some of my colleagues, uh, for many years. Uh, the reality is we have a current system. As long as we have this current system, everyone should have access to it. Uh, it doesn't mean that we can't do more, and I think it's additive. Um, and, and what the governor is doing builds towards a single-payer health care system. What we have to recognize is that right now the number one reason for family bankruptcies in our country are because of medical bills, and that includes folks that have health care. And in fact, upon the establishment of the Affordable Care Act, the number of bankruptcies didn't go down, the same proportion of bankruptcies. And so people do have insurance, but the kind of insurance they have plays a big role in whether they actually get care or whether they go bankrupt because of that care. And so I absolutely applaud what the governor is doing because I think everyone should have access to health care. And I think we can build upon that and continue to move towards a single-payer program. So he's these building blocks are good things. I just think that if we look at our system in the aggregate, it's a dysfunctional system that allows the profit takers to be the decision makers and overrule your doctor. You have insurance agents and insurance, you know, they're, they're, they're looking at the, 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 the bean counting and how much they can make money, and they overrule doctors and nurses. And what kind of system is that where the doctor or the insurance agent tells you, hey, why don't you start a GoFundMe account? This is the richest wealthiest state in the wealthiest nation on earth and that's happening and it's totally unacceptable ash cholera democratic assembly member from san jose and uh, anthony wright executive director the healthcare group health access doctors have been prescribing cannabinoids to relieve ailments like chronic pain and nausea caused by chemo but uh, what if it can help fight covid well uh, it turns out according to some that hemp compounds can actually help block one of the virus's tactics for infection here to Help break down the science is Richard Van Bremen. He's a researcher from Oregon State's Global Hemp in, uh, Innovative Center and the lead author of the study. Thanks for being with us. So uh, how exactly does this work? Well, thank you for the inviting me to participate. We're in our search for natural products that can help prevent or treat COVID-19. We found three compounds from hemp that can prevent, at least in cell culture, with live virus and human cells the infection of those cells by the virus. And the mechanism for that is what? What is the what are the hemp compounds doing to the virus that makes it so they can't get in? Well, like inoculations and vaccines, which stimulate the body to make antibodies against the spike protein of the coronavirus that causes COVID, we were looking for small molecules that could also bind to this spike protein and stop that interaction of the virus with the the human cell, which is the very first step of infection. It's called cell entry. And we found these three compounds. They're cannabinoid acids, CBDA, CBGA, and THCA, that have this ability. They bind to the spike protein in such a way that the virus proteins don't interact with the human cells and can therefore stop that initial site of infection. From happening at all. Now, to be clear about this, uh, you're not suggesting, or maybe you are, that uh, if people smoked a joint, uh, it would help ward off COVID. An aspect about the chemistry of these cannabinoid acids is they are heat sensitive. So heating them by cooking, by smoking, by vaping could very well degrade them. They actually convert to other cannabinoids, CBDA, loses its acid group to become CBD, and everybody is familiar with CBD products on the market already. 
but its precursor CBDA is what we found to be one of the compounds that helps prevent viral infections. And so smoking and vaping is not something that would be recommended if you wanted to get these compounds in your body. So then it would be some other sort of what, like just take the hemp compounds orally to, to get it in there. And, and then, you know, hemp and marijuana and can, both cannabis plants, but completely different statuses legally and, and, and in what they do because the, the THC is not in the hemp. Right. Hemp is by definition very low in THC content. And these compounds are not psychoactive like THC. And therefore, um, products that are allowed on the market already that are derived from hemp can and do sometimes already include the CBDA and CBGA and THCA. But uh, oral administration is certainly a group that works. There's a good amount of information in the medical literature about the oral availability of these compounds. We know that they can be absorbed when consumed. They do reach the bloodstream and they, we are familiar with how they are metabolized, how they get converted and degraded in the body. And we have actually quite a bit of information about their safety. And there is a wide safety margin for these compounds. So I'm very confident that we and others will be able to move forward with clinical studies to establish dosage forms that are safe to deliver CBDA, CBGA in particular, and then carry out safety, well, in addition to safety, look at efficacy to establish what dosages can be effective at helping people stay healthy and not come down with COVID. So if this works, uh, we're still talking about a few years away, right? Well, I think it could be much faster than that. When a new drug entity is discovered, usually an approach something like ours, which is entirely in the laboratory. The next step must be one of establishing safety and toxicity. Is that compound going to be harmful to the human body? And then you would have to establish, is it orally available or is it going to be degraded by the digestive system? And then is it going to be converted into something dangerous? And that's also a drug metabolism question. But all those questions are already known and answered about these hemp compounds. We know they are fairly safe that they're orally available. We know how they are metabolized and they're converted into compounds that are not harmful. And therefore we can skip years of drug development and move very quickly to clinical studies of efficacy and safety. Still with the caution though, that the real world is a lot different than the lab. Oh, of course. And we don't know yet if these compounds are going to be effective and if the dosages can be achieved that result in blood levels that are efficacious. We do know, at least by calculations on, on paper, that an oral dosage ought to be possible that could deliver these compounds at levels which could help prevent infection by the, the SARS coronavirus 2. Right. So at this stage, people shouldn't be running to their pot store to, to buy either edibles or something that they can smoke, thinking that, oh, if I do that, then I'm going to be okay with COVID. Well, many people do consume these products already, and I'm not saying that they should change what they do, but uh, they could certainly check the certificates of analysis from the components that they currently are, are using 
to see if they contain CBDA and CBGA. And if they wish to continue to use these products, maybe it'll help them stay healthy. And if they are using products that do not contain CBDA and CBGA, maybe they could consider switching. Richard Van Bremen, researcher from Oregon State's Global Hemp Innovation Center. Richard, thanks. This is In-Depth for today. Back tomorrow.